Welcome to the Maverick CPA Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders and specialists about their maverick approach to business, opportunity, and life. The show is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Jay Tompkins. Ali, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jay. Happy to be here. Well, I hope you're having a great day, and I think we'll have some unique conversation here around multiple things. But let's start off with, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I'm a Houstonian here. I've been in Houston for 25 years, uh, passionate entrepreneur, and my all my work, professional work, has been dedicated to helping business owners and uh, really helping business owners find their best path forward and bring all the pieces of their wealth their personal life, their business kind of together in an, in an integrated fashion. And I've done that in a few different ways uh, between business and recently authoring a book and now building a, an education and coaching program. So everything really centered around business owners and helping creating, create a positive impact to help them realize and, and capture their life's work. Well, that's fantastic. And I know the book just came out. So let's hit it while it's hot. Tell us about the book. Sure. Yeah, we launched on 2-22-22 last Tuesday and had a great launch. We managed to hit number one bestseller on, on Amazon and a few different categories. And the book's all about, it's written for the business owner that has poured their heart and soul into building their company. And they're looking for a path to capture and to realize their life's work. Like, how do I bring all the pieces together? How do I plan my success and figure out what's next? And the business owner's dilemma, it centers around three critical dilemmas that all owners or all successful owners will face on. The first dilemma is the reinvestment dilemma. I've done well in my business. I've made great profits. Where do I reinvest my success? Do I put it back in the company? What's my return there? Do I put it in private equity and real estate and the stock market and bonds, market and cash? Nowadays, there's crypto. You know, where do I reinvest capital? That's the first dilemma. The second dilemma is kind of a more emotional or personal one. It's what is it all for? Is this for the wealth that I've built? Is this for my children? Is this for charity? Is this for my ego? Is this for fun? Will, will my wealth be a source of enablement, enable, enabling my children or will it empower my children or is it going to entitle my children? And then the third dilemma could come at any time and that centers around should I sell my company? Should I scale it and grow it further? If I sold my company, would that be giving me the freedom to pursue my passion or will I have just sold my passion? Right? What's my best exit strategy? You know, do I leave the company to the children or sell it to the executive team, et cetera? So all of that surrounding around the exit dilemma uh, is the third one. And I've found that in almost 20 years of working and guiding entrepreneurs, when it comes to their personal wealth of life decisions, 90% of their real estate in their head tends to surround one of these three dilemmas. So the book kind of covers those three dilemmas, frames them, and then provides an integrated system called the Wealth Integration System for Entrepreneurs that brings all those pieces together and creates a roadmap for a business owner to to see their wealth with a new lens, but also have a path forward. No, that's fantastic. And I would suggest everyone go out to Amazon and grab this book because that type of information, whether it directly applies to you or not, at least opens your mind up to thinking in a different manner because many owners are entrepreneurs, and as a CPA, I see this all the time, right? They're really good at many things, but they're usually not very good at 
some things that help really limit them back, right? Or causes them to get into reinvesting, as you put it, in the wrong thing, whether it's in their existing business and they're just sitting there starting to churn. They hit this glass ceiling because they just can't go any further. And there's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just what their capacity is and how they're set up and run. And that's where they need outside help. And so, again, everybody out there listening, I would go at least check it out. It's a great read and you will definitely gain information for sure. As Ali has said, he's been doing this a a long time. So what else can you tell me? You know what? A lot of people love stories. So give me a good story about a a client. Obviously, we don't need names or anything, you know, where you've seen some success and potentially even failure in, 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 in things that have happened. Sure. I think what you said there, Jay, that really resonated with me was opening up their minds. And I think that's probably one of the best pieces of feedback that I've received from, from readers of the book is that, especially the early collaborators that read this almost a year ago, they said that I now see this situation that I'm in and it's no longer this view that I have. It's this broad view that's opened up so many new thoughts and opportunities and it's kind of opened up my mind, as you said. And I think that's a great way to describe it. To your question on the store, I'll pick one from the legacy dilemma, kind of addressing what happens with the company? And I think this is a classic one. You've probably seen it before. <clears throat> but I had uh, a husband and wife that came in, and uh, their names, and I'll give them the characters they have in the book. Their names are Mark and Cindy. And Mark had built a company up over 30 years. Uh, Cindy, his wife, was invested in real estate, and she really enjoyed kind of having her real estate investment properties on the side. And they had four children. And one of them, Rebecca, was uh, their daughter was heavily involved in the company and three of their children were not as involved in the company. And the question to Mark was, is, you know, what's your succession strategy or what is your intent for your wealth, everything you've built, your business, your success, your investments? And he said, look, it's real simple. and We've got everything kind of buttoned up. If anything happens to me, everything goes to Cindy. And if anything happens to the both of us or something happens to Cindy, our business gets split up between the four children. And I think, Jay, you've probably seen this scenario before, um, all to each other and then split between the kids. Oh, for sure. uh, It almost never works out. (laughs) (laughs) And for a variety of reasons, right? So at first glance, I said, well, Mark, Cindy, that that sounds great. Tell me a little bit more about about the business. Tell Tell me about Rebecca's role. And Mark immediately lights up. He says, oh, Rebecca, she's been in the business now for 15 years. She basically started when she was in college. She's the second in command at the company. She runs the show. Her official title is COO. And you know, everyone in the business knows her, trusts her. She's my right-hand person. And so I said, so if anything ever happened to you, he goes, yeah, Rebecca would immediately be the one to run the company. And I looked over at Cindy, his wife, and she nodded, agreed, and was very enthusiastic about Rebecca being that next person. So I said, I understand you've got this great plan where you've got a a document that says all this Cindy and then split between the kids, but here are some concerns that could come up, right? What I'm hearing right now is if something happened, Cindy doesn't want to run the company. She wants Rebecca to run it. Cindy agreed. And Cindy really likes real estate. She likes to invest in real estate. So something happens to you, Cindy's going to take over the business. She now has control of everything. Rebecca, who doesn't have really any control of anything, is the one that would run the company. And then if something happens to mom, the company is now split between four children 
25% each. And Rebecca, the one that actually can run the business and has the ability to run the business, has no control at all. Do you see some of the concerns here of what this can translate to? And this was kind of an, a moment of like the, all of a sudden the blinders were coming off. And as you mentioned earlier, Jay, you know, like you're, you kind of open up your mind. Yep. So now you've got four children. One of them really knows how to run the company and doesn't have any control. And then you've got mom that has all the control, but doesn't want to run the company. And you're creating a really good catalyst for a conflict. <laughs> Mom's got it now. You know, it's a really successful strategy for, for creating conflict. Not oh, even talking about the go. three other kids yet. No, no. I mean, this is just between those two and the three other kids, of course. You know, so what is your, he had another daughter. So what does your daughter do? Well, she, oh, she's not involved in the business. And he had some other business, some other job she was involved in. You know, she's pretty astute. You know, her husband's a lawyer. And I said, well, wait a second. Your husband's a lawyer? So you've got this $30 million business. Four children get it. One of, one of the first one you've just mentioned has, has all the control in the business or at least would want it. The second one spouse is a lawyer. This is probably grounds for, you know, reconsideration. And what started with Mark saying, my goal, my initial goal was I want to pass my business on to my children. That was kind of his initial goal. Mm -hmm. And then once we, we went through the process and we refined his goals, it turned into a much more specific set of, of objectives. One of them was, you know, I want to pass my company shares to my four children, but I want Rebecca to have the voting stock and be able to be the CEO and be in control. I want my other three children to have ownership, but the ability to buy or sell stock at a fair value. I want this to take place over the next 10 years while I'm still around so I can see it and, and be a part of the execution. And I want Cindy, my spouse, to have complete financial independence separate from the company. And I want to make sure that any stock that transfers to my children does so in a way that minimizes tax, protects assets. And if they ever get divorced, their stuff's protected against, you know, a litigator or, or ex-spouse or something like that. This initial goal of I want to pass my company to my children got refined so much further. And because of that further refining, there was in increased intentionality for Mark, increased intentionality for Cindy. Rebecca had a, a level of confidence of clarity. The conflict between the other children could be addressed on the front end that, hey, here's why we're doing this. This is what's going on. And essentially going through a process to really get clear about what they truly want and not just high level, but I want to pass my wealth on to my children, but really getting clear about what they want. It changed the plan altogether. And that's one aspect, one little story from a succession or a lifestyle or legacy component that, that opens up, kind of opens up a full perspective over it as opposed to just seeing this in kind of a myopic way. And really where that comes from is simply the fact that you dug deeper and you asked why more times. I think many times a lot of professionals out there fail to ask why enough, right? So they may have asked in mm -hmm. this sense why and, oh, you know, what do you want to do with your business? Oh, I want to give it to my four kids. Okay. And we create a document that says that. Not why do you want to do the four kids and who's involved and all to, to come up with the, the best plan versus, I hate to say it, but most people, because their eyes are closed, don't know what the best plan is because they don't even, they can't think creatively enough or have the experience to think creatively enough that there are other options beyond 
what you think you want when really that doesn't even ultimately get to the end goal because although you may not be around anymore, Mark, right? Would you want your four kids and your wife all fighting with each other? No. And right. the likelihood of that happening, just as you said, is very high. It doesn't mean it will, right? There are the rare occasions where it doesn't. I, I have a client that is some siblings, and <clears throat> they ultimately actually work really well together. The culture around their family is the, the best dynamic I've ever seen. Someone like that, I think, has a chance versus most other family dynamics have no chance because one kid's off in another state or in another country and this and that, and right, they're so spread apart. It doesn't mean they can't be family, but all of a sudden you mix business and money into it, that changes everything. Yep. You were very well said. Uh, it really does. And, and sometimes, you know, you have tragic events that contribute towards it. You know, sometimes you have 20 of your kids or a sibling that passes away or, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, a dispute in the business or there's liability. I mean, there's just so many things that we don't realize we sign up for when we start a company. And it creates great opportunities. Entrepreneurship's, you know, a phenomenal opportunity for growth and, and expansion. But it, it also comes with considerations and planning considerations that have to be taken seriously. And I think this is just one of those examples where succession and uh, and continuity planning is really important. Absolutely. So you have a trademark called return on life experience. Tell us about that. <laughs> Thanks for the question, Jay. I, <laughs> so I've always, you know, when you, when I've, I've been in the business almost two decades, right. And people constantly talk about ROI, ROI, return on investment, like, what is you know our best returning opportunity you know between our company or other investments or this or that? But something that really hit me about almost ten years ago, I had a series of engagements with business owners that had reached kind of the summit of their success. They had sold their companies ranging from twenty million to one hundred million to five hundred million dollars, and they were really when at a moment when I thought they would have all the comfort and financial independence and kind of kind of joy of hitting, reaching the top of their mountain, a lot of them were really struggling with what's next. They were struggling with the life after, their identity, you know, how to plan their success. They were concerned about, you know, wealth transfer to their heirs. And they were, they were facing a lot of these big dilemmas. And the joy of kind of enjoying the fact that they just sold their company and hit this huge milestone, a lot of them weren't experiencing that joy. And it was overwhelming to figure out how to continue growth and how to figure out what's next. And I saw how certain concepts, tools, ideas, planning strategies that we were using really were helping these entrepreneurs. And the impact of getting that help earlier would be even greater if we were to meet them 5, 10, 15 years before that exit, it'd be even more impactful. And the analogy that came to mind was a mountain climbing analogy. And that's, you know, when you think about, Jay, what's the goal of climbing a mountain? I ask you that question. What's your answer? To reach the top or reach the whatever you might call the the peak. Yeah, reach the top, reach the summit, reach the peak. That's what most people would say the goal is when you mountain climb. In reality, the true goal is to reach the top and then to come back down safely so that you can celebrate the success, right? You actually did the climb and you made it down safely. Now, it may sound obvious, but the interesting statistic in mountain climbing is that 80% of the accidents that happen when mountain climbing 
they don't happen on the way up. They happen on the way down. And it's because we're so focused on the goal, and you just mentioned it, right, to get to the top. Every one of us entrepreneurs is so focused on get to the top, get to the top, that we don't think about what happens after we reach the summit, and we don't have a plan for the descent. And I noticed this, I became hyper aware of this when I saw these business owners exit their businesses, and in many cases kind of lost their identity, really struggled with what came next. And it made me hyper aware that wealth is a means, not an end. And if your only goal is the wealth build and you're not thinking about that end, you could be living quite, quite an unfulfilled life after. And in many cases, you may really struggle with the journey post your business, or even if you're going to get back on the saddle like many entrepreneurs do and, and start a new business, there has to be more intentionality there. So that journey and working with those owners that had those big exits and didn't have a path forward, uh, that was a big motivator for me to write this book, The Business Owners Dilemma, kind of expand the impact of my work to, to share this whole entrepreneurial journey. And return on life experience is looking at all of the success that you have, whether it's you've sold your company or you've built up, you know, a great cash flow now from your existing business to say, what is the true life experience that I desire? What does my time look like? Where do I want to spend my energy and my efforts? Is it with family? Is it community? Is it more business? Is it social impact? And what's that ideal life experience that I really desire? And how can I position my wealth or position my assets in a way that best serves the return on life experience I desire versus what I've probably done the last 30 years, which is constantly focus on where can I get the best ROI or the best return on investment. And return on investment is really important. Don't get me wrong. It's a very important thing. But return on life experience is much more expansive because it, it allows you to take the years of success that you've worked so hard for and actually capture that success in a way that can reposition your time. Because the one thing, time is finite, right? We're not going to get more time. So the being able to use the wealth that we have in a way that can best serve our goals for time is kind of like the ultimate outcome. And whatever your life experience is, whether it's climbing mountains or it's spending more time with family or it's building the next startup, using return on life experience as a framework uh, creates that, that opportunity. So what I think is interesting is, you know, return on investment, a lot of people just focus on dollars or numbers, right? And I completely agree that return on investment can be something intangible. It can be an experience. It can be a result other than you made X dollars back on whatever X dollars you spent, right? right. So there, there can be a lot more to it. And that sort of leans into something that you and I both do, right, as a hobby, is I would call it a return on an experience. It's a return on an investment other than dollars because it surely doesn't make us any money, or at least it doesn't make me any money. <laughs> it doesn't make me any money either. Yep. But it's a return on experience. And I know there's people listening here because uh, you and I both are in a community of race car people that they know us and they maybe they listen to us or maybe they don't. We think they do. But it's definitely a unique community that over the years I've gotten pretty ingrained in for a lot of people <clears throat> and uh, a lot of great people and a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners uh, are in this racing community. And luckily enough, at the last race, 
a, a, a person both Ali and I know happened to realize that we were both at the race based on communicating with them in various ways. And then it turns out that we were actually in the same garage. And so <laughs> from that is how the introduction came and how we met each other and then have then realized we've been on track together at the same exact time, you know, competing against each other and, and probably will continue in the foreseeable future. Although even in previously, we were in different classes and, and now you've moved on to a little bit fancier car and still in different classes, you know, but it will mm -hmm. definitely be fun to be at the same place at the same time and get to enjoy each other's company and talk racing. So I don't know how much you want to go into that, but I love talking racing. <clears throat> I mean, I'm always up for, for talking about racing. It's been a fun journey. And it, I think your example and return on life experience, that's racing is one of those things. And in fact, a general good friend of mine in the racing community, his joy, he sold his company. And his joy now is, you know what, I could make, and this is probably the best example I could give you. He said, I could make a lot more money investing in other deals, other businesses, going back into the businesses I was involved in before I sold my company. But one of my joys is I love race car driving. And the team that we have, you know, we don't make a ton of money, but there's a huge life experience. There's a lot of joy. I get to employ people that I love. We get to build cool cars. We get to race cool cars. And if somebody looked at me and said, hey, I'm going to call him Mark for conversation purposes. Mark, you know, you're you know, your $2 million that you're investing in this race car company, you could generate a much better return in X, Y, or Z. For him, it's not a math equation. It's a lifestyle equation. Yep. And he knows he could make more return elsewhere, but he's like, the joy and the happiness that this gives me. I have enough wealth. I have enough cash flow. I position my assets and my money in a way that gives me the income I need, the, the, the cash flow, the taxation strategy is all there. I've got the pieces buttoned up, but what I want more than anything is the ability to truly enjoy the success that I've earned. And for him, enjoying it is a $100,000 simulator at his house and having a race team with five different cars and being able to employ people that he loves working with and create jobs for them and also get the joy of, hey, I came up with a cool new setup for the car. Can you guys build it? And let's go test it at a new racetrack across the country next week. Yeah, and ultimately, and, maybe that's the goal of some of us to potentially have something like that. Or you can take us, who we're in two different roles. So I share a team with three people, and we do it pretty much on the cheap, right, compared to a lot of these other teams. And, and then I've also done what you do, which is basically buy a seat in a car to race in any given mm -hmm. weekend. I've done it both ways, and, and they are unique and different experiences, even though we're both in a race car on the same track. Being an owner of a car and renting a car or renting a seat, the experience can be completely different in just being part of the crew and having to maybe do repairs or just even travel and getting there. So like, for example, my race team, which is two of my very good buddies, <clears throat> you know, we spend a ton of time working on the car, loading it up driving it across the country, whatever, to get there and then do the race. And all of that is part of our experience that we love, you know, boys trip, hanging out with each other. Mm -hmm. Then the alternative is what I've also done. We have a, another good friend who has his own car and rents seats. Last year, two different weekends, I rented a seat from him. And it almost felt weird the first time I did it because I was the first one in the car. <clears throat> did actually, this was Barbara last year. 
I actually did four hours in the car to start the race, started in first, got out in first. And then he's like, I got out of the car. I'm like, all right, what do you need? Like thinking I got to help fuel something else, right? Because that's what I'm used to in, in my ownership perspective. And he's like, no, you're good. You can go to the hotel, change, do whatever you want. You're done. I'm like, really? I, I feel like I need to do something, right? And so then I figured out quickly, I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to change out of my race suit because that feels like I'm giving up. So I'm not going to do that. But I know a lot of people here. I'm just going to go schmooze and walk around. And it was great. So I spent the rest of the race schmoozing, walking around, and then we ended up winning the race and got to stand on the podium. Totally different experience. And so it's just, it's unique how you can even have sub experiences to a a single experience. So I guess, so how'd you get into racing? Let me ask you that. Somewhat by accident. I was out at at a track day and testing my car. I have a a GT3 at the time that I was uh, running out at Coda. And there was this gentleman next to me, actually, his name was Jay as well, just a coincidence. And he, I'd seen him at a track uh, previously at a separate track event. He came to me and said, hey, man, are you, are you interested in, in getting behind uh, the race car and starting the race as opposed to just having track days? Now, uh, that was the beginning. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm cool. Let's check it out. Let's try it. And uh, a few months later, I had my first uh, event with the team. And the moment I had the first stint, I, I got done and I was like, this is it. Like, this is the, this is mm-hmm. one of the best ways to experience Once the bug bites racing, you, it bites you hard. Yeah. And endurance racing for me is, is, I think it's an unbelievable mental challenge because when you're going two, three, four hours and the amount of mental focus, like you have to be on point the entire time. There's cars in your mirror. There's, you know, stuff on track. There's flags, there's speed, there's you're at the limits. And you're doing that for a really sustained period of time. It's just an incredible amount of endurance, mental stamina, you know, just focus that has to happen. And when you have an incident or a problem with a car, or I remember one time I didn't even know it, but I was racing in Houston one summer. It was 100 degrees outside and my cool shirt connector wasn't on and I didn't realize it. And I went an hour and 50 minutes, probably mm. with 115 degrees in my body, not realizing what was going on, just thinking yep. it was mental pressure. And just knowing when I got done what was going on and thinking about how your brain responds in those kind of high-pressure situations, I mean, it's an amazing experience. And I, I don't know, endurance racing, I don't know if I'll ever give it up. I think it's one of those things that's just that enjoyable, even if it's well, on and a very I agree with that. basis. So when I rented a seat, there's a guy named Joe Bunton who rents seats from the same guy very often in the same car for Peter Chang, PC Racing. And he's like 69 years old still doing it and is still competitive, right? Mm-hmm. And we can all, everybody talks about aspiring to be Joe, right? I could be 69 years old and still be competitive and have fun doing this, right? Like, why not? And now it, it does, it takes an extreme amount of focus and endurance. And, you know, people think, oh, you're a race car driver. You don't have to be in shape and all that sort of things. Mm, tell you what, go get a car. And in, in my race car that I own, we don't even have the cool shirt stuff and all that fancy thing. And I've just got introduced to that when I started renting seats. Do that and tell me you don't have to be in shape. Have your power steering <laughs> fail five minutes into your stint. Tell me you don't have to be in shape, right? right? And or do it for even just one stint. Let's just call that an hour and a half. Do it for an right. hour and a half. Get out and tell me you're not tired, sore, worn out. Your body is doing a lot more than you realize, even though you're sitting in a seat, 
driving a car. And it's just a whole mm-hmm. different experience than driving to grandma's house. Right. Yeah. So how often do you uh, race? Not as often as I like. I think pre-COVID, <laughs> I was probably doing about 10 races a year. Oh, wow. That's or 10 bad. days a year. And uh, well, 10 days. So that might be five trips and, you know, uh, two races in each weekend. And then I think this past year, I've done two, two races, maybe. And hopefully this next year, I can get back up to, to five or so weekends. Plus, my, my favorite setup is if I can do one every other month. And then... Mm-hmm basically practice practice on the simulator at home for the different tracks and then fly out you know once every other month to different tracks around the country and just get to enjoy the enjoy the experience of some of the coolest racetracks in in the US. Yeah, it has been fun. What about you? To, yeah, same thing. The most I ever did was last year and I did five weekends, two rented, three mm-hmm. with my team. And my team we really can only coordinate doing three because we're you know all busy people also and again a lot more works that going in than flying out on a thursday coming back sunday night to to go race a car when you're the one prepping it getting it there travel time because from houston and we're both in houston it's a day to two days travel time to anywhere right coda is the only one that is really half a day for any of us or or houston right? right but other than that you're talking everything else is a full day of travel or two when you're towing a trailer. Like we've gone to road America and VIR in Virginia and right. I mean, that's 24 hours of driving to get there and back. Wow. You you, you forget the back. So you're transporting your cars in a trailer across the country. No no support. You're doing it all yourself. All ourselves. And and that's part of the fun. The three of us are in a truck together in an RV. We've done both. We all have, we've had Mm -hmm. both and so forth. And I think two of us still have RVs, but anyway, we will do different ways for different reasons. Stay in hotels. Sometimes we, when we went to road America, the first time we decided we were going to drive straight through. There was four of us in the truck, which was a terrible idea. And my wife goes after, (laughs) after we did it, my wife goes, look, you guys all make decent money. Why in the world would you not just stay and get a hotel room? I'm like, well, we thought it was a good idea and we thought we were saving time. Ultimately, we weren't. So sometimes you have to experience that for yourself. But yeah, so Road America, we've done twice. Been to Virginia. We've been to High Plains in Colorado. Coda, Houston, NOLA. Those are all the ones I can. Th- oh, um, the one in Oklahoma. Indy? We haven't been to Indy. The small one in Oklahoma. The little track. Anyway, those are all the ones I've been to with my team. And then I've been to Barber, Sebring last year with uh, Peter. And then this year, we're supposed to go to the new track in the Ozarks and back to Coda and Austin in December. You know, assuming we can get spots because that's a whole new thing. Our world has blown up with people wanting to race and all these almost professional race teams. It's incredible Mm -hmm. what this thing has turned into. I've been doing world racing league for uh, six years and to see it change has been incredible. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. There's incredible drivers that have come out when you're hearing people that, you know, one, uh, one NASCAR races and one at Indianapolis and they're racing in, in a, in an amateur race league. It's really something. Well, and a lot lot of people don't realize that a lot of racing, well above even our pay grade or experience level, is still pay to play, right? The the concept around like all these NASCAR drivers and Formula One drivers are all paid millions of dollars to drive this car. Well, that does exist, but a lot of it is still people are paying 
for themselves yep. or their kid or whoever they're sponsoring to drive that NASCAR around mm-hmm. in a circle. And so yep. it, what we've seen is some of those professional teams come down into to our level because the value is high for them. They get track time in practice, potentially on tracks that they're going to go race on. So like at Coda, the last two years, there's been NASCAR guys there because they started racing NASCAR at Coda. And so they're like, how do I get track time? Well, they can get track time so much cheaper amount per hour doing one of our races than attempting to rent the track or any other way. So that's where we've seen that. And you're right. They're good. But what's funny is I remember watching the NASCAR race at Road America on TV, watching them race. And me and my buddies were like, I'm pretty sure that if you put me in one of those NASCARs, I'd be faster than half the field because I know what I can do at that track and watching them race. Now that I don't know if that's actually true or not, but you know, that's mm-hmm. us talking about ourselves, but even still it might really be the case because half that field are probably really no, no better from a technique standpoint than a lot of us who do this, you know, as pure amateurs, you know, handful of times a year. Yeah. Yeah. My, I'm with you. I think about the 1% concept, right? Like there might be 1% of, of all the racers that are really compensated for racing. Yeah. And then there's the 90, 90, 99% that's pay to play or, you know, there might be some subsidy involved. But I'm with you on the on the performance aspect. I think that seat time makes a huge difference. And some mm-hmm. of the amateur drivers are just as good as the pros. It's just a lot of those pros are getting more seat time and, you know, mentally are more prepared. Because running a fast lap time is one thing. You, know, you can run a great lap at Coda. Running a fast lap time when there's four guys right in front of you, and two guys right behind you, and you're going through a corner at 100 plus miles an hour, and there's someone six inches from your bumper. That's a yeah. different. That's a different experience than just being on track by yourself as a fast driver. And actually, and, we have uh, a guy who is a previous karting champion, and and actually mm-hmm. owns the kart track out in New Caney. And he comes and oh, cool. races with us every once in a while. And we've learned a lot from him. He was a previous Bondurant instructor and done all the things, right? He cannot race a car at all. He'll get in our car and be two to three seconds faster than us immediately. Now, we're slowly closing that gap. And actually, he's been on my show before. His name's Alan. And he's a great guy. And we've just been able He's we've used him like an instructor, right? We'll watch video. It's amazing. It's literally tenths of a second per corner better than us, right? Right. But that right. adds up to right. over 20 corners a couple seconds. Mm-hmm. Just like that. Yep, I know. And it's amazing how that, yeah, breaking that instant tiny bit different back to the throttle, that in, that tenth of a second, that's all it takes to be a few seconds different in one lap, come one person to another. It's incredible. Uh, that so. really is. That's a great, that's a great example. Yep. And then when you compound that over a two hour, three hour stint, you know, two seconds faster a lap, I mean, you're talking about someone that's, minutes minutes ahead by the end of the day yeah and that's what we've slowly figured out in 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 our racing so we're the pure amateur guys right we don't have three guys funding it all ourselves doing it all ourselves racing it all ourselves everything ourselves and for a long time we were playing around with okay well what if we got better fuel mileage but we didn't try to go as fast right because then maybe you don't have to stop as often to refuel is that a better strategy and ultimately what we figured out 
no matter what, run the fastest tire you can, because some tires, based on how the compound is, even though the tread wear is the same, run the fastest tire you can and go as fast as you can all the time. That's the only way to win. That's it. If you try to do anything else, because we've tried it, ultimately, it doesn't work out in your favor because of those small incremental differences over eight hours of time. I mean, we've literally had races that we've won by 20, 40 seconds or even lost Mm -hmm. by 40 seconds. In eight hours of racing, you lost by 40 seconds. I know at NOLA, some buddies of mine, they were racing. They got second place by a tenth of a second. It came down to the finish line on the last lap over eight hours. Yeah. Yeah. We've had a couple of races that have been closed. Nothing a tenth of a second, but we've had some that we're in the we're in the home straight, you know, a couple car lengths away, you know, in first place, second place. Our team does a lot of fuel management. We still plan to go fast, but the, the way our cars were set up in our deal was we could go an hour and fifty, hour and fifty five minutes on mm-hmm. one tank. And that really created a nice advantage. Now we were still pushing it to to get the fastest lap times we could as much as we could. But the fuel management of, you know, having a car that could do exactly two hours and on a full tank, that made a big difference versus something that could go 90 minutes or 70 minutes or something like that. Oh, for sure. And it uh, does, especially in your class. So, you know, as all the racing has gotten faster, right, in our league, in World Racing League in general, all it's gotten faster. And it used to be in GP1, we've always been in GP1. It used to be getting close to two hours. So like GP2 is the old GP1 now as far as how they work out. So it could be if you could get close to two hours or get that and and run, you know, that one less stop, that was the golden way. Well, nowadays right. in, in our, for us in GP1, that's not possible. If we tried to do that, we we wouldn't even be on the podium because they're so much faster now in the same class. Right. Times have changed. Absolutely. They, they have in, in the strategy part. And I think that's where a lot of teams miss is they're not prepared on the strategy or there's a double yellow that comes out and they're not ready to put extra fuel in the car when they need to make sure you make it to the end. Right. And they don't have that strategy set up at first. And so therefore, ultimately, it bites them when, wow, man, how do we end up two laps down? Well, because you took that extra fuel stop. That's all it took. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And double yellow is the best time to do it. So. It is. It is. Have you experienced the code 35s at any of the tracks you've been at yet? I have not. <laughs> so Barber is one of those. And I was there last year. And like I said, I was in the car for four hours to start the race. And there was a quite a few purple 35s is what they're called. Where basically you have to go 35 miles an hour on the track for them to do hot pulls. There's no double yellows. Okay. In fact, there's very rarely even a, a standing yellow, like at a certain you know point in the track. And so you're just cruising around the track, 35 miles an hour, just waiting to see a green flag. And it's and they have a breakout time. So if you happen to go too fast and your lap time is faster than a certain amount, you get penalized for it. It is really wow. hard to go from doing a hundred and something miles an hour around a track to then <laughs> attempting to keep a race car at 35 where I mean, uh, is yeah. the speedometer even right? Like, I don't know. I mean, we're, I'm dealing with, mm-hmm. we race a, you know, a 
25 year old race car. It, it's like, it's good. It's insane. You're just like on a Sunday drive, run a racetrack. Here we go. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's definitely it's like unique. a pit, pit limit for the whole track. I've not experienced that before. It is. And, I'll, uh, I, so, and I'm so. not a fan of pit limits at all. Cause I think that takes a strategy out of it. I mean, I, you could say it's a different strategy, but there's some strategy in making sure you get your fuel in as quickly as possible, right? And you can switch drivers and all that. There's a lot more to it than, oh, yeah, we got five minutes to fuel and it only takes us a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, I think we could talk about racing all day and probably bore the rest of the world. So what else do you want to give us on your practice, on your book, what you're doing? Well, I think that, you know, if you're a business owner and you know, you're dealing with one of these three dilemmas and you're trying to get clarity as to how to capture your success and solve your dilemmas and bring all the pieces together and have integration between, you know, all your life's work and the wealth that you've built. I think the business owner's dilemma, the book will, will create that roadmap and that clarity for you. So if you're, if you're someone who's, who, you know, you've got that entrepreneurial mind and you're kind of looking for the right solution for an entrepreneur, I think you really enjoy the book, The Business Owner's Dilemma. That was written for you. And I think that would be my my, my biggest thing I would propose for, for your listeners is to check out the book and hopefully it's able to give them clarity on their journey and help them create a path forward. Well, if you'd like, like to said, connect with just, me. Yeah, even just open your eyes to an idea that might be other than what you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll definitely open up your mind and create to create a new paradigm and then give you a lens to see it all. So if you're if any more information you're wanting, whether it's on the book or to connect with me, my my website's alinasser.com, just A-L-I-N-A-S-E-R.com. Uh, I do speaking for uh, CEO and business owner groups, either at national conferences or for private forums like YPO, Vista, GEO, some of the private forums as well. And we have a boutique firm here in Houston. Uh, if someone's looking for specific advisory services um, and all the information on, on me on the book is available at alinasser.com and the business owner's dilemma is available on Amazon. And uh, we've got Kindle and paperback hardback and hopefully an audio book coming out in the next uh, next six months or so. Well, I don't think you could make it any easier. So I appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, spend the time today on this podcast. And hopefully those listening got some good information out of it. And, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing you on the racetrack soon. Thanks, Jay. It's been fun. I appreciate you having me on and look forward to what's next on the racetrack and what's next in business. All right. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jay. Much welcome. And there it is. Another fantastic episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at maverickcpa.com, and you can find out more about all the ways we can help you at bakertilly.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.